Hey everyone, welcome. This is Dr. Nick Hoffman again. This week we're talking about a slightly different book, a more contemporary book, which recently came out as a movie. Um, and I'm joined by a different kind of panel. We have guests this time, and we will be talking about Just Mercy, a social justice book by a lawyer who works in the South, helping people who have been wrongfully imprisoned or uh, put on trial with racial bias. Um, this is kind of part of the new wave of summer reading, getting away from classics and into more discussion-based books. This is probably more the kind of summer reading you did when you were in college than you did in high school. But, you know, it's a book worth reading, and I will be joined by two additional panelists this time to try to get, you know, how the, the book fits into the social justice program at our school. Thanks for listening. Continue to subscribe and follow along and uh, review and rate us and all those kinds of things, which makes a project like this successful and satisfying for the people who participate in it. Thanks. Welcome to another episode of Required Reading. Um, this week, we're talking about Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Um, I'm Dr. Nick Hoffman. On panel, we've got... I'm Mike Burns. This week, we're joined by two guests. We have... Liberty Williams. And? Caroline Belden. And we are here to talk about a book that we assigned this year for one of our two summer reading books. This one, Just Mercy, was for the upper school, the high school. And like any summer reading books, we had a lot of convention and complaining. But overall, um, I would say this book caused less controversy than the other one, which stay tuned. We'll talk about <laughs> that one in a few weeks. Uh, but overall, uh, as for people who not only have read it, but had to teach people about the book, What's your overall feelings on it? Uh, it went well. I mean, I think when, with summer reading, the goal is to get kids to read the book first. Um, and so I think there was enough interest that they read the book, given the current events in our nation and our world. And it's a very readable book as well. It's a compelling story. So from those two aspects, success. Yeah. I also like how it um, lines up with our faith. As a faith community, we're able to really see ourselves in it and apply that to our practice. Yeah, the kids in my homeroom actually read it before I did. So they were like, Miss Belden, you haven't read it yet? And they're like, it's so easy to read. Like, it'll go really quickly. Yeah. Um, so then I read it, and it was good. I think that they really enjoyed it. They really enjoyed the narrative style of it. Um, it was easy for them, and I thought it brought home some of the stuff we're trying to talk about. Sure, and I will say, um, you give me a challenge, man. I will plow through books, and Lorita and I have talked about this, but... I'll probably put down 75 books this year. This book might be the one that I felt like I could picture the characters the best. Mm -hmm. Something about the way Stevenson talks. Do you get a real feel for who he is? And maybe it's that he's an attorney and some of his description is very blunt and forward. But man, I really felt this world that he, he lived in in a way that some of the other books I've read are very distant, very top down. He's a guy on the streets. He feels it. And... You, he interacts with these people in a very understandable way, and I think that's why students relate to it, because you get a conversation here, which is really just compelling, truly compelling. I'm curious, have any of you seen the movie? Because I've not seen the movie. I haven't seen it either. Okay. I haven't seen it yet. That's no always a concern one? with summer reading. You want to pick a book where kids can't just see the movie instead of the book, but well, that hadn't seemed to be a problem. It, I haven't seen it be a problem with students either, and I also heard that the movie really focuses on that main story of right. McMillan. Uh, and you miss some of the side stories that you get in the book. 
Right. Yeah, which was part of the appeal, like getting Walter McMillian's story, but then also hearing all of these different snapshots mm -hmm. of other people's lives. Um, that made the book continually interesting to read. Yeah. So, yeah. Right, right. And um, so I don't know how much thought you guys think we give to this podcast, but it's a lot of just, let's talk about <laughs> something. The episode's coming out soon. I think, uh, I, think I heard about that thing. Yeah. <laughs> Just looking through the Cliff's Notes version of Scarlet Letter before we start talking about exactly it. what we don't want our students to do. Right. Exactly. Right. Um, but uh, th this book kind of has several different narratives it runs down. Uh, we have the overarching story, which you alluded to, is the basis for the movie. But also, Stevens gives Stevenson gives us a lot of his own background, mm -hmm. plus kind of a feel for the racial feeling of the South, mm -hmm. specifically um, it's what Montgomery, Alabama, and Atlanta. He traipses through because well, we're Atlanta, where the kind of big city in the South that you, you cut your teeth on, uh, which we kind of get that feeling of. But he himself is from Philadelphia. Uh, so we have the kind of different regions of how he views race and how the South is kind of this big impending kind of, this is where the injustice is that he has to fight. Though he does keep relating it back to the North, where he's from, and uh, which I think also compels us. It, it makes it feel like he is a real character that drives through this story. Yeah, he paints like a really interesting picture of the south one that i think as a person from atlanta um i don't always think about um because i don't spend my time in monroeville alabama um but the fact that he draws that contrast but then talks about his experience of sitting in his car in the street right. in atlanta and still being over policed um i thought was really really compelling and powerful to read I don't know if this is going to detract, but I, I like that comparison of, of his experience from the North versus the South, and also with that same story about him being over-policed in the car, um, how it gives this contrast, or maybe even comparison, between his experience and those of his clients, right? So he is not immune because right. he's educated yeah. or buttoned up or whatever else. Right, right. And I, I like the story because I don't know about how you guys grew up seeing race depicted, but to me, it was always the Southern Gothic story of the bleakness of the South, but I'm not saying it's not, but this provides a much more nationwide narrative, right? Which, which I also think is important, as he is constantly the outsider, and right, like, I've read my share of John Grisham, but, but, that, but that long, that, that like new lawyer story is always so compelling, like, he wants justice, and that idea of searching for justice, and he himself can't get clients off because he's being harassed by the cops as well is such an interesting color to this. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I know it happens, but when you get his narrative, it feels like a very personal story, right? It does feel like a Grisham where there's a legal drama going on and there's a background here. Uh, what's the one that Stelges used to assign? The uh, something lawyer. Uh, street about, lawyer. The street lawyer. Yeah, he and this McGram. This very much like the street lawyer, but, you know, real. Um, and, you know, less Grishamy, less made for TV, less for movies, even though, of course, they've made a movie out of this. Well, it's a very American sort of genre, right? You have the little guy fighting the big institution, and we like the lone individual that's going to stand up for, for justice and, and equality. Um, I'd, I'd like to hear you guys' um, thoughts on the title. I think the title was brilliant for many reasons, but what did you guys just think of the title as a starting point? Mm, I thought the title... I like the way that you can play with it in different ways. So in so many of the stories, especially in talking about the South and his experience, 
the people that cared for him, like the black communities that he found himself in because he was a part of these cases, Walter McMillian's family, the way they cared for him, like just like simply mercy. Um, to me, those are the stories that brought that way of reading the title out. And then, but then to talk about mercy is really justice. Right. Um, and that justice also is entirely about having mercy. And so I think all of those readings, of, it is brilliant in that way because you can read it different ways. Right. <laughs> and justice too. I mean, Loretta, I know you've been there because you went with us on the field trip oh, yeah. um, to Montgomery to um, the National Museum for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Project Museum, mm -hmm. which our listeners, if you haven't been, it's well worth the trip to Montgomery. It's one of the best museums I've ever seen. Um, mm -hmm. So powerful, but um, to have that connection and having been there and then read the book, I did it in reverse order. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Stevenson's doing an amazing job as far as calling attention to these untold stories and stories that we need to hear. Remember field trips? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, once upon a time. That's right. Well, and I mean, j just for my own validation of talking to hear myself talk, um, I like the title as well because. Uh, let's put a former president. Um, William Howard Taft became a Supreme Court justice because he believed that the closest person could be to being, you know, divine in some way is to be just, to be a judge, to make fair understanding. And that's what this is, right? The one thing we should try to give is mercy. And if we're looking for justice and trying to give mercy, it kind of all fits together. And it is. It's also that tongue-in-cheek legal idea, right, to look for justice. I, I think it's fun. I think it is actually a good reflection. Um, in fact, I even like the cover of the book more than the movie cover because I think I worry about telling history in the terms of a great man, a great narrative, you know, just because, and that, that's who Michael B. Jordan is on the cover. He's standing up, <laughs> right. chest yeah. out. Yeah. But this is very nebulous. The idea of being merciful should not apply to anyone. Um, even though, of course, we have our hero uh, in, in this autobiographical tale, there is something to be said for just this is something we should all strive for, not just this one man on his own. Um, so I appreciate that mm -hmm. issue of the book, which is something that you have trouble with making a movie, unless it's an art project movie. Um, so. I also don't think that's the way he tells the story, right? Yeah. He doesn't tell the story as if he's the hero. Right. right. He very much tells it as the person transformed um, by the heroes who have survived and um, been unwilling to give up. Yeah. Um, and, and to me, yeah, that represents much more of his what his message of this book is. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, and I, I come from a family of overeducated lawyer types, and I, and again, I, I, I'm a white guy, so I can't relate to that, but they do. My dad does immigration for a lot of Latin American people who feel constantly ostracized. My uncle does class actions against people who've been wronged by, you know, big companies, and the idea that you come out of law school fairly idealistic, oh, I'm going to help out some businesses, I'm going to make some clients, and then, you know, my dad is dealing with the day laborers who go to our church and trying to get their immigration papers together a lot of the time. It's, you know, it's, it's very disheartening. It's a very difficult climate to do any of this stuff in, and that's why this book is perfectly appropriate for the now, um, where it seems like, not that we've gotten away from race or we've solved race, but it's been really fired up in the last few years, and I think it's important to bring it to the discussion, to the table. Um, so do you want to break down the plots of these for us? You taught this to the alumni. <laughs> <laughs> taught is a strong word. <laughs> Facilitated. Thank 
they came to teach us. Trust right. me. Yeah, that works, right? We're all teachers and we're all students. Here, I'm so. curious, and this might be a different topic, but how that went. I never really heard from from any of you how that went. That whole process through the book. Or... Well, I, I'll let Caroline start because oh, yeah, she actually you... worked in Just Mercy, and I led the discussion with Stan. So okay. That'll be another episode. right. The alumni discussion was really interesting because I think people came into it with different um, goals. Like some people came into this thinking, all right, Maris is ready to talk about race and I want to be a part of that conversation, so I'm here. Um, but then this book, like it takes some work to connect what's going on in this book with what we're dealing with at Maris and in our everyday lives. So I think there was a lot of discussion on systemic racial issues, um, but then at the end of it, it was like, okay, wait, what do we do at Marist? And what do we do as alumni? Right. Um, so I think, you know, it got the discussion started. I think it was a signal to them of, we wanna keep going, we wanna get into this. Um, we're not afraid of talking about systemic racism, um, and I think this book is perfect for that because it's, it, bring, it makes the systemic personal. So even though there is a gap to close and like, what does this mean for us here? Um, it did get us to this point of, okay, how do we as a community become more merciful people? Yeah. Um, which I think is a worthwhile discussion to have in the context of race, even if it seems a little simple, simplified. Um, it needed to happen. So, but yeah, I think in general, it was a good way to just get an alumni group that is interested in having conversations about race together in a, in a room, like via Zoom, um, to start. Was it just one and done, or was it over several nights, or how, was what was the over process? over three. So okay. we had, yeah, each, each book club session that we did on Stamp, Just Mercy for Alumni, Just Mercy for Parents, it was a three-session series that happened a week apart, okay. and then we took all of the books sequentially, so just a few chapters at a time, um, and had discussion questions to follow what was, you know, happening where we were in the book. So that, I think, did that work well for Just Mercy since the stories unfolded over time? Yeah, actually that was one of the biggest things that they liked about it, was the way that we broke it up, because it's manageable, right? Um, and so you don't have to come in like ready to go with everything you can just come in with like man this story really hit me differently this week and this is what i want to talk about um and because he has those little chapter sized stories in there you can you can talk about the larger narrative of walter mcmillian but you can also say this one little story yeah. had hit me this way and i thought about this and it was easy to digest well, in a, in a similar way, I was, I was going to ask, too, did this, with the alumni who are adults versus kids who are more passive, and so the alumni, obviously, they're invested enough to sign up and show up for these things, whereas their students have to be in our class and have to go through it. Did this, did it open up opportunities to just share stories, just having this dialogue that this is what's going on, this is a, a forum to to question, to ask, to advocate? that you think Marist was missing or now has, or I don't know. It definitely brought up discussions of um, alumni's experiences at Marist right. and uh, things that they're 
peers at Marist hadn't heard before. Um, they're white peers at Marist hadn't heard before, and I thought that was really important. Um, it also brought out people who were doing work related to this, um, who were lawyers right. or who taught in schools where they interacted with a lot of kids in the foster care system. Um, and they were able to share those stories, which I think as alumni, we don't get to hear the ways that we're all trying to make a difference once we leave this place. Right. Um, so that was good to have a forum for people to share that, those kinds of things. Now, um, something I think we should, I guess, want to get into. Um, how did this book come around as required reading for art school, like literally summer reading? Because it's, I don't know what people at home think of, but um, if you haven't been in school or interacted in schools in the last 15 years or so, uh, the pattern has been moving away from classics to books more that will cause discussion, more current events. Uh, by the time I went to college, for example, in 2003 was my first year, Nickel and Dimed by Barbara Ironreich was kind of part of it because the idea was called for social justice. And so, you know, as opposed to rereading Huck Finn or whatever, uh, that's been the movement of summer reading just nationally. So if this surprises you, um, that, that's kind of the general academic sphere right now. Um, but, you know, I know some people were on that decision panel, like even getting away from the politics of the school of trying to pick a summer reading book, what brings this book to your attention as a possible good summer reading? exercise. Lorita? Okay. <laughs> um, well, I wasn't, I wasn't a part of the decision process from the beginning, but to my understanding, Just Mercy was thrown out as a title or suggestion to consider very early on, and then, uh, you know, we set it down or to the back burner or maybe even dismissed it altogether, and then it came back up again later as an idea that we might revisit and reconsider. Um, to my understanding, what really solidified it as a decision for us um, was coming just off of the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the subsequent protests uh, that really caught national attention. And then where we were sitting as a community and wanting to tackle these issues and then seeing them sort of, you know, culminate in this way in front of our eyes on, on a national stage and saying, okay, we want to we wanna be able to make opportunities for dialogue in our schools about what's going on, and here's one way we can do that. Yeah, and then just logistically, Marist has been moving towards a sort of one school, one book model, and the idea of the relevancy, as Loria mentioned, is, is very true. And the hat, that it had a young adult version that would be readable for the students, I think, was important, too. Um, and then there was the idea of getting speakers, which we had on the programming day before, which I've heard good things back from our, our students about that, so that, that seemed like a success. So it just ticked a lot of boxes, essentially, is, is how we ended up with it. Well, uh, we should get into the book specifics. Um, you know, so who wants to start? Like, how, how do we break this down? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I was kind of expecting that you would kind of have to break down or how you wanted to tackle it and. Leave us in questions. Well, so here, here's where we can start. You keep mentioning this guy. What, yeah. What's the one tri trial? What's the one case that we're kind of driven to this point? Right. Okay, so the case that goes throughout the whole book is the case of Walter McMillian. 
who was framed for the murder of a white woman in Monroeville, Alabama. Um, And he was essentially framed because there was a lot of pressure when she was murdered to find um, the killer. And they didn't have one. um, And they needed one. Um, And so he just happened to be kind of in that wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, There was another person involved in other crimes who had identified him as the killer, and he kind of was seen as this uh, very respected man in the community and had his own business. I think that was threatening for a lot of people in town. Um, So there's a lot of layers to it and to why he was framed, Um, but he was framed for murder he was sentenced to death, um, and so this is his the case of Brian Stevenson trying to get him off death row and exonerated is the case that runs throughout the book. And we should talk a little bit about Stevenson, right? He is, you know, kind of a brilliant lawyer type who comes down to Atlanta thinking he's going to be here briefly and gets kind of swallowed up in, uh, what is it, the Southern Center for Human Rights? I know he moves to Alabama and starts equal justice. Right. Oh, his original move. Is it? Are you thinking? Oh, maybe I'm wrong. Edit this part out too if I'm wrong. Is it the, <laughs> <laughs> the Southern Poverty Law Center? Yeah. Uh, which is Southern Poverty Law is the overarching organization. Okay. Yeah, and underneath that, he works with the Center for Human Rights. Gotcha. Uh, but regardless, I mean, doesn't he have his own troubled past? Like, I think his grandmother's murdered uh, when he's 16. And so he kind of comes together as someone who comes to the South to, I mean, fix this up. Now, what, what I think is interesting, too, is he talks about the layers, right? Because it's not just that he's African-American. He's in a very poor community. And there is that class struggle between those people who want in on his business effectively, too. And uh, the murder, in fact, happens in Monroeville, as you alluded to, which is the setting for um, To Kill a Mockingbird, mm-hmm. which, I mean... This case would have been made into a movie anyway, it feels like. It feels almost too perfect for then right. this young hero to swoop into, um, which makes it feel very narrative. It's great. It's an incredible little story, right? Um, and uh, the one piece of evidence that makes Stevenson interested is that he's looking at a, he was at a fish farm. Right? right. 11 miles away, which, again, feels so incredibly rural, community-oriented, you know, Having a, a fish fry, I mean, what's that one? Yeah, <laughs> yep, a fish fry. Yep. You don't yep. get much more neighborly than I, that. I come from a Catholic family in Mobile, Alabama. We had them every Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, again, it's that Stevenson is also the man out here because it describes him driving over that almost road, trying to get to the family who are more than welcoming because they're, he's saving their family, so to speak. And he he just describes being uncomfortable trying to drive on this road. It's it's truly remarkable little image. Yeah, it's like the whole book is sort of his journey of going into discomfort. Like his whole journey through the South is a journey of discomfort and conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's just he just pushes through and allows himself to be like vulnerable and transformed in that. Mm-hmm. I think that is this. That's a thread throughout the book as well is his own personal journey um, to being 
upheld by this community. So it makes me think, um, speaking of the book a little bit as a memoir, because it reads a little bit like a memoir, and it seems like maybe the lesson he pulls from it is he had to get that proximity with these people and their stories in order to be able to help them, in order to build empathy. And I think that he even mentions that, that that is like a necessity, is proximity. You can't have empathy from afar. You can't understand or help people from afar. Um, you can't build change from afar. Yeah. So I like that. That stayed with me. Well, and I, I like how he, because he describes the fact that there's so many cases thrown at him that, first of all, it's overwhelming. It's very disheartening because you, when you read a story like this or even kill a mockingbird, like the idea of Atticus Finch being on your side, that's what you want. Like, it's your chance to get out. But the idea that there's so many overwhelming situations that he could have picked any number of them. It, it, it's really disheartening, right? And he even gets into, like, the mentally ill that he has to help and mm -hmm. the people who are so poor that they're their only chance. It really, I mean, something I know that you and I talked about before, one of the things that parents and students like about this book more than the other books is there's a call to action here. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know what exactly the call to action cleanly is, so to speak, other than it made me really want to donate money to the ACLU yeah. and the Southern Poverty <laughs> Law Center. Yeah. But, like... The question is, you know, what's to be done? I, I'm not a lawyer. I can't take my money, please, because this seems overwhelming and very tragic. Yeah, his whole life feels really chaotic and overwhelming, like, and throughout the book, because he's just like, well, and then we couldn't take on any more cases, but then we did. We did. <laughs> because if, if not us, who? Right. <laughs> and again, if you're someone who comes in as the, you know, the hero type who wants to give people justice, what else do you do? Right. Oh, it's, it's, that, that's the hard part of this book. And maybe that's why he focuses on the one story, because he's like, well, these other 99 cases had to just be passed off, which is right. tragic, because he clearly does a good job. And when you realize how much he has on his plate, which he gets into a few times, taking time out to go to that fish fry means that three other cases have to go aside, but he saves, one, like, again, sometimes Superman has to save one person, which right. is fantastic, which which you get, you feel for Stevenson here. Um, yeah, and I like that, you know, I think this book gives him a chance to say, I could only help this one person, or these however many people he mentions in this book, but the, I'm amplifying it so that you know how many more there are. I also just kept worrying about him falling asleep at the wheel. I was like, I'm waiting for the story where he falls asleep at the wheel on his drive home. Say I something. I, I can't hear myself in the... Oh, there it is. There it is. Oh, I just turned you up a little bit. You're yeah, fine. Sure. I, you still have a sine wave. I am recording oh, Okay, you. yeah. I was wondering, like, did anything I say register this entire time? <laughs> it's this thing. The headphone amplifier's crap, so it's it, it, it'll cut out, but you're fine. Not um, that I was saying anything particularly moving. Profoundly, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> You're fine. Um, anyway, so where do you want to go from here? I mean, I can lead us more, but I mean, if you have something you want to bring up, I don't want to take away from you. Well, I guess I I will talk about the story of the the prison guard, please, because that one really, I think was interesting to me in a lot of ways. So there's a story that he tells 
later in the book where he talks about a prison guard who had been pretty unnecessarily rough with him when he would visit his clients and had all kinds of um, white nationalists, white supremacist tattoos and stickers on his car. Um, this was a person who he knew did not like him, <laughs> was mm. racist, was white supremacist. Um, and he had this transformation from seemingly watching one of Stevenson's clients who was on death row go through a trial mm -hmm. um, and the way that Stevenson treated him as a human. Um, and the prison guard watched him do this and was incredibly moved by that um, and shared that with Stevenson and ended up quitting. Um, and one of the things that I thought was really moving from Stevenson was him challenging us to think, can anyone who's a part of the process of executing a human being be untouched by that experience? And I think the answer from the prison guard story is, if we're paying attention, no. Um, and I think that story really illustrates that we have to, we can get really close. Proximity is important, but proximity without the willingness to see another person as a human being can almost make us more dangerous. Or maybe intention, find somebody with intention. Yeah. Um, well, and, I mean, the thing that colored that story for me is the milkshake. Yeah. Right? Um, the, the client, if I believe, and I apologize for confusing people, but he was mentally, he had a mental disability. We're not exactly sure what, um, but like he just wanted a milkshake. Right. And eventually it's the prison guard who brings him the milkshake. Like it's, it's a, it's a sweet little vignette that runs through about a third of the book, but it is, it's, it's just, this man is going to die and he barely understands what's happening. And they emphasize that it's Alabama. So a judge can override what the jury wants so that, the like the judge wants capital punishment for a lot of these people. Uh, I think his name is Robert E. Lee something. Or, right, 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 right. It's so it's so on the nose, and it's over a chocolate milkshake from a Wendy's or whatever. It's it's a very it becomes a very sweet scene out of really horrible situation. Um, and even trying to get people into the courtroom becomes a a, a side kind of side quest. Um, as they're trying to harass the uh, audience so that the audience doesn't buy the, bias the jury. Right. Just because it's these, you know, they describe elderly women coming in their church clothes, and it's, they're painting a very vivid scene. Um, and again, the, I think the uh, To Kill a Mockingbird overlays this because that's how the book builds in To Kill a Mockingbird. And so it's almost like this is a real version of what you know from Hollywood, from fiction. Right. Um, but painting that courtroom and, and to kill a mockingbird, all the African-Americans are up on the balcony looking down. It's, it's something. And there's the metal detector and the dogs. Mm -hmm. And then there's the elderly woman who saw the dogs in the sixties and, and was scared to and, go and walk past them. Right. Yeah. I think that, you know, paints this picture of like, this is connected to the kill a mockingbird. This is connected to this woman has lived through all of this. Right. And it's still, and still and has still fear. still fighting the fight, yeah. Well, and that's the thing about this book. Like, we learn in history the 1960, you know, two through 65 student protests. Dogs in a courtroom 
that aren't just sniffing for drugs. They're literally just to harass human beings. Mm. That's something. And I don't know when, I forget when this book is exactly said, but in like the, the 20 teens, that's, that's a lot. Right. <laughs> that's right. a lot. There's a lot going on there. Um, how does this feel from our social justice perspective? Mm. Well, I mean, this is clearly a call to action, mm. right? Do we as a school feel like we need this, or is this something that we should be reinforcing? How, how, how does this fit into us as a you know, community at a Catholic school with a fairly wealthy clientele, right? How, how, how does our student body, how does our faculty, how does our alumni take this? Well, one of the connections we talked about in um, our department when we were discussing the possibility of doing the alumni book club was the... Georgia still practices the death penalty, and our state's attorney general is, is a Marist alumni. I know you can't <laughs> put that in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's a connection there with even something that seems very far removed from us as faculty and students at a high school sure. um, to our state's policies. And but on a on a sort of if we take it down a few notches sure. i think like i said earlier it makes the the systemic very personal and so students and faculty as i'm reading this too have the opportunity to read the stories of these people and think man like have i ever thought about a person on death row as a full human being and what it feels like to hear an execution going on? Um, have I ever thought about the full experience of a kid in foster care and what they've been through? Um, and for our students to to have to read those stories um, and to to think about kids who may, they probably don't know, um, but to hopefully grow in empathy, First, kids in different situations than their own. Like you said, this is a very wealthy school. Mm -hmm. um, and our students, I think sometimes with, okay, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I was thinking about, I don't want our students, when they go do service um, in different parts of Atlanta, to have this white savior complex. Sure. Um, I want them to go into it as equals with the people that they are serving with and alongside. And I think this challenges them to look at anyone in a different situation from them as humans. Mm -hmm. it, I agree with all of that. And I, I wanted to also add, I think another component of the social justice aspect is this issue, the, the pro-life stance that we have as Catholics, that we sometimes tend to only relate to a fetus and not to humans on death row. And what does that mean for us as Catholics and how can we get involved and amplify and use our voices to uh, advocate for these people as much as we do for unborn fetuses? Which is like the cartoon version of what's going on. It's really just, when, when we think of it, right to life month that uh, happens every January, it's, you ignore the living population a lot of the time, mm -hmm. but I think it's important. I, I will also add to that discussion, um, and again, I don't want to take a book if someone else is reading it right now for the end of the podcast, but this book feels a lot like Cast, 
Um, <laughs> I had a thought earlier, yeah. uh, and I was going to relate it to Cass, but I didn't want to, again, it, just be a spoiler for, for what I'm reading now. I'm currently reading Cass by Isabel Wilkerson. I'm um, about a little over halfway through it. But when we were talking earlier um, about how Walter was used as like a scapegoat, they just needed someone to pin this crime on uh, so that they could feel settled as a community, and in particular because the victim was a white woman and he was a black guy, and that seemed like it was, you know, appropriate. Right. What it was is upholding this caste system, this unspoken caste system that we have in America that is based on race. Um, and Isabel Wilkerson talks about that in her book and how um, it's necessary to maintain the the rungs on the ladder or the inferiority, perceived inferiority, assigned inferiority of certain groups by making them the scapegoat when necessary. Yeah, I think this book also is has so many different entry points. So yeah. you can read it and maybe you're in a place where you read it and the story of Ian... Um, the juvenile who's sentenced to, a, he's put in an adult prison um, and this horrifying situation and you read it and that story just really moves you and hurts you and you think, man, like if you're a student here at our school, you think, oh my gosh, I cannot imagine that happening to me. So maybe that's where you are when you read this book. Maybe you're a person who's like, Wow, look at all the loopholes in our justice system. I did not realize that those all existed. How could Walter McMillian have been sentenced to death? That seems insane based off of how little evidence there was or no evidence. So maybe that's where you enter into this. Um, but I think there's ways to enter into it every place, no matter what kind of no matter where you are with social justice and your understanding of it. Right. Well, and I mean, you know, by my own confession, um, as someone who thinks academically, like I love reading Ibrahim Kendi, um, and we've had discussions, Marita and I, about like, you know, Kendi and, you know, how to be anti-racist or whatever versus white fragility and that kind of thing and how, you know, Kendi probably doesn't like it versus mm. who, like, you know, but that's very academic. A sociologist and a historian mm -hmm. battling you know, a lot of this stuff, and I'm not trying to take away from the memoirist, um, so you want to talk about racism was the one I read this summer, which I enjoyed, but, you know, it's it's a very different kind of book. But this, I thought, tied everything together so well with his own personal story and his own personal struggles that I was completely, like, engaged in it the whole time. And again, you know, I mentioned The Street Lawyer before. That's totally a white knight kind of narrative where it says, White guy who went to Harvard, he ends up in Atlanta helping the inner city poor, which is kind of his narrative. But it's also he's part of the community and right. he's also being harassed by the cops and the, the jailers and the sh and the judges and all of this stuff. It's it makes it a much harder narrative to get through. Uh, it's much more personal, much more visceral. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, the other historical parts of it, the kind of systemic racism parts, almost feels like another story for another day because it's such a yeah. like, it's such a big topic. But does any of that stand out to you guys? I feel like I'm going in the opposite direction. But what's interesting to me is we, as a community, talk about this book and having selected this book as being about race. And it's about race, and it, and it, it certainly contributes to some of the stories here. But it's also about mental health. It's also about how we, you know respond to all of these other injustices and marginalizations 
uh, in our system, in our justice system. So I, I think maybe I'm not answering your question so much as <laughs> I'm saying yes and. Sure. It's, it's all of these other things. Yeah, it's, it's intersectionality, like, yeah. in action, like, in the worst ways possible. It just showcases, like, poverty compounding race, oppressions yeah. of poverty, race, mental illness, um, lack of access to health care, mm -hmm. um, lack of trust with communities and policing, yeah. and how all those things piled up on one person can be absolutely crushing. Yeah. Well, and it's so funny because it would have been such an interesting and easy story for him to write where he was, you know, he grew up in a hard situation and then went to the elite levels of law and then he came down and founded this center. <laughs> End of the story, right? Like the first act of it is an entire movie on its own. Right. And then the whole story is him desperately fighting a system. And that's a lot. <laughs> that is so much. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and you you, you can you can even picture it with his first apartment and the rain coming in the roof and him nearly getting arrested on the street and then he makes it and then there's 200 pages after that. Right, and you just kind of are like, man, you could have chose something different. Like mm. this is this was a this was a choice, and then to choose to do it the way he did it in this kind of like, I'm just going, I'm just going in, like yeah. make a break, like. Not make or break me, maybe, but make or break these clients, make or break their lives. Like, he's just like, I'm in it. I'm here. It feels to me like there was a calling place in him that he, that mm, he chose to answer. Yeah. Yeah. Because, again, like, he could have been back in Philly with the Mercedes just right. because he's clearly a great lawyer. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, he described, was it like an old Ford or whatever, like with just files scattered around and. You know, it's it just screams like grad student barely getting by, yeah, and yet yeah. he's done. He's there. He's made it. Yeah. yeah, this book is. I think maybe that's important for our students too. This book is about vocation. Mm -hmm. He had, even from where he came, he had access to the highest levels of wealth and success, um, and he chose to go in a different direction. And many of our students, if not all of them, will have access to the highest levels of wealth and success. And it's up to them to choose differently. And they don't have to. Mm -hmm. And so this shows you what could happen if you do. I mean, you may not be this like founder of an organization. <laughs> and get a movie made fighting about you. <laughs> <laughs> fighting injustice. Um, but I think it's a I think it's an accurate picture of like anyone who chooses an alternate path the there's struggles that come with that but there's also like it's deeply worth it if you're willing to commit to it. Anything else you guys want to touch on? I just want to say that this I think um I was really, every story about a child in the justice system in this book absolutely crushed me. This is my second year in education. Mm -hmm. So this is only my second year working with young people in a full-time capacity. And I think that coinciding with reading these stories of these children, um, I was imagining like, how can kids who are just as precious and brilliant and have just as much potential as the students I get to be with every day um, be going through this? Um, 
that was hard to read. I had to put it down at different points just to like get through some of those stories. And I think that was a call to action for myself that I maybe wasn't expecting going into it. I, I did not know those stories that so much of this book would be focused on the incarceration of children. Um, but just a call to action for myself of um, paying attention um, to that, um, to those who slip through the cracks, um, not just of the system, but of our eyes <laughs> and society. Um, and to make sure that our students know that there's other realities out there. Um, I think that that was one of the most important takeaways for me from this book. Yeah, I'm glad you shared that because as I was flipping through the book looking at other stories I wanted to bring up for this conversation, um, and we did, we did mention it and, and touch on it a little bit when we talked about Ian um, and, the, and his story. Um, that, that also stood out to me as someone who works with children. And then even as I was reading it, I also had to put it down at times, but I was thinking of not only about my students, but how the students might be reading that themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and if it would be as difficult for them as it was for me, if they maybe even saw how their lives were different, if they saw themselves as you know potentially being in situations like that, had the circumstances been a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Sure. Well, I think we can... You know, kind of put a, a cap on this. Would you recommend our listeners read this? How do you think it fits? I would absolutely recommend this book. Yeah. Um, who are our listeners? <laughs> who, who knows? This is episode three, so could be anyone. Cl you know, clearly not Mike. He can't listen to himself talk. But you know, the rest of you might be listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Just Mercy is is a is a very moving collection of stories um, from the authors vantage point for himself and for the clients and the people that he's worked with and supported and I mean the messages and the gems and the, the lessons that you pull from it are numerous I think as we sort of highlighted today there's more than one takeaway that you can pull from that and apply to your own life and, and what you're doing and how you're approaching and doing the world I would absolutely recommend, I think it's an easy read, easy in the sense that it goes quickly, you don't want to put it down um, and so as far as books that get to the heart of social justice, like you said, Nick, there's a lot of academic ones out there. Um, but this I highly recommend to kind of get at the heart and to, to let that sink in that social justice is a heart issue too. And so I think this book gets at that. Yeah. And I, I will, you know, I'm not going to disagree with either of you. I think you two got it perfectly. I'm with you. I will also just add though. This is also like a, a nightstand book. You can read this on your own. You know, some of the books we'll talk about, it helps to read with other people. Though this one, of course, will benefit. This is a great book club kind of book. But if you wanted to tackle this on your own, it's not like, I don't know, it's not like a Shakespearean play where it really helps to talk it out. Right. This one you can get on your own. And it's it goes quick. It's only 300 some odd pages. You can crack this one out on your own if you, you so desire. Or, you know, take it to your Sunday school class or, or however. I think it works perfectly fine. Uh, so I would recommend it as well. I would too. Thanks, Mike. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Lorita, are you reading anything you want to share? Yes, I'm reading Cast, and I would, I, even though I'm not finished with it yet, would absolutely recommend it. So I'm reading it for my book club, which is called Inclusive Leaders Book Club. And um, 
it's folks that work in schools and independent schools that started in Atlanta, but since we've had to move to a virtual platform, we've now invited in folks from all across the country, and so that's pretty cool. Um, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation that we're going to have about it. So even as I'm as I'm still not quite finished with Cast, as I'm reading through it, I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. Like we are going to get into some stuff um, because it's just a different way of thinking about racism as we understand it in America. I am reading The People's History of Christianity by Diana Butler Bass. It is modeled after Howard Zinn's The People's History of the United States. Um, So it tells the history of Christianity from the perspective of people throughout time who have really modeled what it means uh, to follow the main commandment of Christianity, which is love your neighbor as yourself and um, love God. So it talks about basically devotion and ethics and what that looked like over the course of history. And I love it. Not done with it yet, but I would recommend it. Interesting. That's what I haven't heard of. I'll look that one up. Um, I've talked about cast with uh, mm-hmm. Lorita before. I loved it as well. So you get that recommendation. I was nervous about a be- book on the cast system in America um, that was sponsored by a, a billionaire. <laughs> Oprah Winfrey, but you know, it, it, it really turned me. It's it's excellent. It's I didn't excellent. think about that irony there. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to recommend something that might seem out of left field. So stick with me for a second. It's called um, "Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered." Um, <laughs> it's, My life goals. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's actually kind of the point of the book. Uh, it's written by uh, Karen Kilgareth and Georgia Hardstark. They do a podcast called "My Favorite Murder," and after doing it for a few years and being very popular, they realized that a lot of the victims were women in their teens and 20s, and then, especially if they were minorities, they weren't investigated. And so it's kind of a book on feminism in that women should be willing to say no if they're uncomfortable in situations. You have to be aware of yourself. Women are not at fault for who they are or how they dress or whatever, and we need to hold people accountable. And they share personal stories about how they got put in dangerous situations because either they were unwilling to say no or they just weren't aware enough. And so like, it comes from a true crime background about how so many women who get swept up in these things are just, quote-unquote, being polite, because that's how you're trained in American society. But you need to be willing to stand up for yourself, which, again, as someone who teaches teenage girls, it's something that we need to be aware of, that women should be able to to stand up for themselves even at the age of 14, 15, and say no. And it's not to say that it's a light book, because it is sometimes funny. They're both comedians and comedy writers. But it takes a very serious topic, which, frankly doesn't get talked about a lot and then sometimes it's entertaining sometimes it is uncomfortable but it's very well done Uh, their podcast is good but their podcast is really true crime this book is kind of a helping feminist book and i think it's excellent so seek it out it's not something that you'd assign this is more pleasure reading more personal reading but give it a shot stay sexy don't get murdered uh but in the meantime thanks for participating uh, Larita, Caroline, thanks for coming out. Absolutely. Mike, you're welcome, Nick. And um, <laughs> so, thanks for listening, guys. Thanks. Required Reading is a product of Marist Podcasting Club and Dude Letter Podcasting. It is produced by Nick Hoffman and hosted by Mike Burns and Nick Hoffman. The theme song is Feeling Good by Kevin McLeod, used under the Creative Commons 4 license. Find it at incomtech.com or linked on our website. The views expressed here are the views of the hosts and the panelists. 
and do not reflect the views of the Marist School or the Society of Mary.